Okay, guys, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56 today. The title of the message is True Worship. True Worship. And we will read that here in just a few moments. But I want to read two verses that we just read a while ago in our scripture reading. But it's John chapter 4, verse 23 through 24, by way of introduction. Jesus told the woman at the well, but an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so that's a very familiar passage, right? That we know that that God is, is seeking uh, true worshipers, and, and true worshipers are those who worship in spirit and in truth. And I think probably the best way to describe somebody worshiping in spirit, as we'll see in Mary's songs, it's just worshiping in spirit just means it's genuine. It means it's it's heartfelt. It's it's a sincere worship. Okay, so it's from the heart, and obviously we know. But to be true worship, it also needs to be rooted in truth, and and what the truth, according to the truth of God's Word, right? Not, our, not my truth, not your truth, but the truth. So it's a sincere worship rooted in truth. And he says, for such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. You know, and as I, as I gave this, uh, as I prepared this message and then gave it the title, it just, I thought, wow, it's really kind of providential maybe to, to make these few comments, and I'm not going to stay here long, but... You know, but but the question about what's going on up at Asbury College, you know, about is this a true revival, as I put this message together, about worship. And I'm just going to say a few things, guys, that I think I probably need to say as the pastor here, is that um, I would be very cautious with what's going on up there. Just from, I've read several articles, and are you guys familiar with what I'm talking about? What's going on up there? Okay. A supposed revival breaking out. Um, obviously, we all would want revival, right? Um, but just a few things, because I think really what we're looking at today applies to that whole situation. Um, you know, just a few words of precaution from some really good sources that I've read is um, there doesn't seem to be much gospel at all being preached. Um, I think any rev- true revival, it's going to be rooted and centered on Christ. Not to mention sin and holiness and, and all of these things. Uh, but people who I've read that have been there, trusted pastors, said there's not much Christ being mentioned. Um, you know, some things like maybe even some of the students who are leading are homosexual. And that's, you know, just some very disturbing things. Um, but obviously I don't want to comment too much because I'm not there. But I would say just use caution. The best thing to do is pray for those. Pray for God to send revival. That's what we need to be doing. But true revival is always going to be when you do a, a study of the history of revival, whether it's in the Bible or church history, it's always it always is rooted in um, primarily in much preaching of the word, preaching of the truth. And so, and First John four one reminds me of a verse, guys, that I think we could all heed. With, with anything, not just something like this. Um, but he says, John says, Beloved, do not, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. 
So a situation like this, guys, time will tell. Time will tell. But there are some major red flags up in my own mind as, as, as what I, when I read about what's going on up there. Um, but anyway, we're going to look at what true worship is today. I think it's very clearly laid out in this, this text today, verses 46 through 56. Beloved, our worship should be from the heart. That's what we're going to see today. Our worship should be from the heart and centered on God. Okay? From the heart and centered on God, who He is, what He has done, and what He will do. I think all true worship is going to have those elements. It's going to be heartfelt. That's the spirit part of it. Genuine, sincere. It's, it's from a person who has an experiential knowledge of God. They have experienced the new birth and there's a true love for Christ. So our worship should be from the heart, centered on God, who He is, what He has done, and what He will do. And I would say before we look at the text, not like the Pharisees and scribes, right? Matthew 15.8, Jesus says, speaking of the Pharisees and scribes, this people honors Me with their lips, right? But their heart is far away from Me. We don't want to be like that. They had, they had a lot of truth uh, in what they taught. Jesus, matter of fact, one time Jesus said, hey, do what they say, just not what they do. And so we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be all sincere, but sincerely wrong. But we don't want to be hypocrites either. And so, so let's look at Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56 today. This is called uh, known as the Magnificat. That's uh, uh, oh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Latin, <laughs> Latin. Magnify, right? She's magnifying the Lord here, and so this is this is a beautiful portion of Scripture, guys. So let's read this, verse forty-six through fifty-six. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for He has had regard for the humble state of His bondslave. For behold, from this time on, generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, His servant, in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. Let me pray. Father, we just come before You once again today. And Lord, we just, we just ask You, Father, for Your help. Father, I ask for Your Holy Spirit to help me. I ask for Your Holy Spirit to help us as we hear Your Word, God. I pray that You would help me clearly communicate it, God. Father, I pray, Father, that Your Son would be glorified today. Your will would be done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you guys have a if you have a uh, outline you want to follow along, or if you have the bulletin, the outline's on the back. You can follow along if you'd like. So we're going to see four things today out of this text. First thing we're going to see is that it's God-centered. And you say, what verses are that? Every verse. So we'll just briefly go through and just take a look how you can see that this worship, this praise, this hymn of praise that that Mary is singing to the Lord. 
It is God-centered. It is God-centered. All of our worship must be God-centered. Let's just look at the text real quickly. My soul exalts the Lord. And we're we're not going to stay here real long. I just want to point these things out. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For He has had regard for for the humble state of His bond slave. For, For behold, from this time, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. Can you see how our worship is God-centered? That's the first thing we see. His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. Sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel His servant in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our forefathers, to Abraham and His descendants forever. Do you see how it's God-centered, guys? Very clear. Um, so I want to I make it clear, guys, that it's, it's not wor- when we talk about worship, it's not just our singing. Okay? That's one element of worship. When we come here and we gather corporately and we sing to the Lord, it does need to be true worship. It needs to be rooted in, in truth. And it needs to be sincere, guys. God knows our hearts. God knows when you're playing games. God knows when, when you and I are being the hypocrite. Or maybe we're singing the songs, but our heart's far from Him. So yes, it does include singing, but it's in our entire life. When we talk about worship, worship is our entire life. You know what worship is? It's just a response to God and who He is. Who He is and what He has done. When you think about what that verse that we read in John 4 said, it says, um, for, for such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. You know God is seeking worshipers? That's what, that's what happens at regeneration. We go from being rebels of God, those who love our sin, those who hate the God of the Bible, right? Because He's holy, we, we love our sin, And we go from that through the miracle of regeneration to now being a worshiper of God. It's a beautiful thing. And so that should describe our whole life. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. You guys know the story in Genesis 39 where Joseph was being tempted by Potiphar's wife. Remember that? To come lay with her. And it it indicated that it was happening every day. It was a continual thing. And in Genesis 39.9, He said, How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? That is a response. That's what I'm talking about. This is a, we worship God when we respond to something like temptation. Joseph, listen to what he says. How can I do this great evil and sin against God? That was his motivation to not succumb to this temptation. It was his love for God. Yes, he didn't want to offend her husband as well, but it was, how can I do this and sin against God? You see that? That's an example of worship. That's what motivated him. His response to who God is. It's our response to, to God, whether singing, whether resisting temptation like Joseph, or another example could be on our jobs. On our jobs. And, and you can think of every area of life. Raising your children, teaching your children. But here's a good example. On our jobs, Colossians 3, 22 through 23. 
course, we know we could apply this to the employer and employee. Paul says, slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. So right, when we go to work, we have an employer, we need to obey him. Not with external service, as those who merely please men. In other words, not just when they're watching. But with, listen to this, sincerity of heart. There's that, there's that genuine, heartfelt response to God. But with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. As for the Lord, rather than for men, because it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. You see that? You see that, guys? That's why we want to do a good job. You know, there's many guys that I work with. You guys can probably think of it as well. There's many guys that I know who they do a really good job, but, but we have to ask the question. I'm, I'm talking about maybe men who aren't Christians, who don't love Christ. They do a good job at work, but what's the motivation? It may just be to please men so they can get a promotion, right? It may be the love of money. All of these things causes people to do a good job for their employer, but... Guys, we have a king that we want to honor, right? We have a father that we want to honor. So what is your motivation to do a good job on your job? To do a good job as a a husband, loving your wife, as a wife, loving your husband, raising your children, whatever it is. This worship is God-centered. Every area of our life, including our corporate worship. But it applies to every area of life, guys. It's a response to God. Amen? Amen? Okay. Secondly, we see that true worship rejoices in His mercy. We see this through, uh, in verses 46 through 50. True worship rejoices in His mercy. So just going back a little bit, guys. You remember you know, when we go back to previous verses, Gabriel shared the news with Mary, right? That she was going to conceive, that the Holy Spirit was going to overshadow her. That, this, uh, that this, this baby in the womb was going to be created directly from God. That it was going to be the promised Messiah. And so, so after, she let, after the angel departed, she, last time we looked at she traveled to see Elizabeth. And then God confirmed Gabriel's message through her encounter with Elizabeth. He just confirmed it. And so her faith was strengthened even more and, and so that's where it leads us up to where we're at today. And so this, this song, this hymn of praise is what it's described as, is the result of her, of her faith being strengthened. Now she's praising the Lord because of that. Again, it's, it's known as the Magnificat. She is magnifying the Lord. The first thing we're going to see in these verses, guys, as we, you know, as we go through them, as we've read them, you can see real quickly that Mary knew the Scriptures. Mary knew the Word. Mary was very familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. And and you know, as I was thinking about that, guys, a brand new believer in Christ can worship the Lord in spirit and truth, right? They know enough to know that I was a sinner And God saved me. Amazing grace. A a brand new Christian can understand that song. That God saved a sinner like me. But the more we know, the more we know who God is, the more we know His Word, the richer our worship can be. 
Because that's what we're doing. We're singing, we're singing to God in these songs that we sing back His truth. And so the more we're familiar with God, the richer our worship can be. But this, but this song that she sings, it, it's taken from, I don't have them all written down, but there are references from several books in the Old Testament, including, I counted, in one of the commentaries I was reading, it was around 20 verses in the Psalms that she is referencing at some point, one point or another in this song. And so what we see here, guys, this is sincere worship from the heart. This is not dead worship. You know? Hopefully, hopefully you guys aren't, aren't involved in that type of worship. I know many are, right? They may have all kinds of knowledge up here, man. They know, they know the Scriptures, but there's nothing going on in the heart. It's not heartfelt. They're just going through the motion. And may that not be us, guys. This is, this is heartfelt worship. In verse 46, she says, My soul exalts the Lord. That, that word just means to make great. To magnify Him. To esteem Him highly. Beloved, God-centered worship is what this is once again. And God-centered worship doesn't depend on our circumstances. Do you realize that? We all go through difficult things in this life. We do. And if you haven't, you will. And it's just part of life. We live in a fallen world. But this God-centered worship, it doesn't depend on circumstances. It's consumed with thankfulness for who God is. Now that doesn't mean there's not going to be an ebb and flow in our emotions. That's not what I'm saying. But true worship, it's consumed with being thankful for who God is and for what He has done. That's what Mary is... That's what she is... Remembering here who He is and what He has done. And so what about us, guys? Do we, do we, do we remember who God is? Is that, is that is what at, at, the, at the top of your mind when you, when you think about God, do you remember how glorious He is? And really, as we're going to look at here in a minute, what we deserve, guys. That will keep us grounded in our worship with God, guys. Because do you remember what you deserve? We deserve the hell of hells. That's what every one of us deserve for our sin. We deserve nothing but God's judgment in hell because we have sinned against Him. We have rebelled against Him. And that's what we deserve, but God is merciful as we're going to see. And so this is why Mary is rejoicing. She's remembering what she deserves. Look at what she says in verse 47. And my spirit has rejoiced in who? God my Savior. She understands that God is her Savior. She recognizes and remembers who God is. Do you guys remember that? When you wake up and it's a, you know, just the monotony of waking up and doing the same thing every day, guys. Do you remember who God is? Do you remember what He saved you from? Do you remember who you are without Him? Hopeless. He is our Savior. In verse 49, she says, The Mighty One has done great things for me and holy is His name. Again, I think Mary would have been very familiar with... She was obviously very familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. That, that phrase, holy is His name, I have no doubt that Mary would have been familiar with Isaiah 57, verse 15. Listen to this. For thus says the High and Exalted One who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and but listen to this. 
and also with a contrite, with the contrite and lowly of spirit. He dwells with those who are humble and lowly and contrite in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. She remembers that He is holy. But no doubt, as we'll see, she remembers that He, he has mercy on those who are humble. What a glorious God we serve, guys. You and I deserve judgment and God has given us mercy because of His Son. It says He is mighty. In, um, in verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me. That mighty just means God is all powerful. He is omnipotent. And this is the one who came to this earth and was beaten at the hands of godless men and put to death on a cross. You know, I think that's man's biggest problem, right? We don't know God. We don't know who God is. Humanity doesn't know who God is. Many Christians don't know who God is. They know enough to be saved, but that's about it. What do, what, do, what do most people, who do most people think God is like? Santa Claus. I mean, they really do, right? He just kind of outweighs your bad and your good. If you're good, you get good things, like heaven. And he's just here to give us good gifts, just like a genie or Santa Claus. That's not who God is. God is mighty and powerful, God is holy. And so, what's the result? Because our world, by and large, Sadly, the church by and large, we don't know who God is. What's the, what's the result? There's no fear of God. As we're going to see here in a minute, God's mercy is forever for those who fear Him. But why is the world the way it is? Because there's no fear of God. Listen to, listen to Romans 3, 10-18 real quickly. It won't take long. As it is written, this is Paul speaking about, about hum, the human race, Jew and Gentile. There is none righteous, not even one. And and what do men naturally say? I'm a good person. There's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. You see how specific he gets? He repeats it. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Just picture what an open grave would look like. That's what humanity's throats like are the words that come out of our mouth. With their tongues they keep deceiving. Their poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, right? This sounds like the 10 o'clock news. Destruction of misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. Not, there's no peace with, between people and no peace with God. There's, and so there's no peace. Um... And then verse 18, and why is all this? Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. If you want to know why the world is the way it is, there you go. There's no fear of God before humanity's eyes. We don't know who God is. The moment you speak up and start telling people who God is, you're you're told you're a lunatic. But Mary not only remembers who who, who God is, but who she is. Again, God my Savior. What, what does that imply? She recognizes that she's a sinner. Not the Queen of Heaven, like the Roman Catholic Church teaches. She realizes she is a sinner. Do we realize that, guys? That we are sinners. That's why Christ came. And so even her position in life in verse 48, first of all, she understands she's a sinner, that she needs a Savior. In verse 48, she says, For He has had regard for the humble state of His bond slave. 
the humble state of his bond slave. Even in even her position in life, she recognizes, she approaches with humility. She recognizes, I'm a nobody from nowhere. Right? I'm just a young virgin peasant girl from this little bitty town. And so what you see with Mary, there's not any boasting. There's not any boasting. God opposes those who boast. Beloved, there's not any boasting. She refers to herself as the bond slave we talked about a few weeks ago. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. What does that mean? She recognizes that because God is her Savior, she is now her or God's slave, right? Servant. My life's not my own. Do we, re- do we remember that, guys? When we become ungrateful and unthankful and we complain, do we, just, we need to just stop and remember what we deserve and what Christ has done for us and that now we are His. That's what, that's what we see with Mary in this, in this genuine worship. She's rejoicing in His mercy. Verse 48, For He has had regard for the humble state of His bond slave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. You know what she's saying? There's nothing in her, guys. You know why you know why all generations will count her blessed? And she's referring to uh, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, this great privilege that God has given to her. Remember the angel said you found great favor. The, the grace of God has come upon you. You have this privilege of carrying the Messiah in your womb. And Mary's, Mary realizes it's nothing in her. That God is just, first of all, by His grace, He has saved her. And then by His grace, given her this great privilege. And so we've talked about that, guys. No matter what, no matter what God gives you in your life, whether it's, whether it's ministry or whether it's uh, a, a brilliant mind, uh, brilliant talents, guys, we should not boast in any of this. It's all a gift from God. We are all just privileged by God, first of all, that we're even alive, that He hasn't judged us, but then He's so gracious to us. And He gives us so many things that we don't deserve. He has done great things before me. This this miraculous conception of carrying the Redeemer who would come and redeem sinners. Mary has this great privilege of carrying this Baby in her womb. It's God-centered from a heart that's been humbled by grace, beloved. This is a heart that has been humbled by grace and all of this is a response to her. Did you know that a proud heart, guys, is incapable of any of this? A proud heart is incapable of any of this. You ever thought of why people get so offended when when you share the Gospel with them? Because... Men are proud, right? You cannot save yourself. You cannot help yourself. You are in danger because you're not a good person. And that just, that just it goes all through. The proud. But when a person is humbled by the grace of God, and we, again, I go back to the song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, now I see. And remember the context, guys. John Newton was a slave trader, an evil, sinful man, and God saved him, his eyes were open, and now he sees the marvelous grace of God. That's what, that's what salvation does. It humbles us. 
But a proud person can't worship God. But what we also what we see in verse 50 is that it's not just inward. Okay, what I mean by that is, yes, it is genuine worship. Okay, that Mary is, is directed towards God for what He's done with her, but it's not solely focused on herself. Okay? Look at verse 50. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. Genuine worship, guys, not only rejoices in God's mercy towards yourself, but God's mercy to all who fear Him. Is it not a glorious thing? When you think about when I when I think about you guys, and I think about God's mercy in your life, how you have experienced the mercy of God because you deserve the same thing I deserve, and it just we just break out in praise. Thank you, Lord, not just for saving me, but for saving my wife, Kelly, Jared, and Mindy, and Rocky, and Angela, and Carl, Sai, and Jane, Shiloh, many others. Right? We have many friends, but we rejoice that His mercy. And look at look who His mercy is for. It's, it's, his mercy is upon generation after generation toward who? Those who fear Him. Those who fear Him. That's, that's who His mercy is reserved for. It's those who fear Him. It, it really reminds me of Psalm 103, verse 17. The loving kindness of the Lord, or if you have an ESV, I think it's the, the steadfast love of the Lord, is from everlasting to everlasting. That means it never ends. But it doesn't say it's for everybody. It's, it's on those who fear Him. Do you fear God? That's the question. Do you fear God? What does it mean to fear God? It's a reverential love for God. It's not a dread. It's not a dread. It's an affection. It's a reverential love and affection for God. It's like a, it's like a child, guys, who doesn't dread their father, but who loves and respects his father. And there's a fear of dishonoring him or displeasing him. Picture that, a child with a really good father. And he doesn't want to do the wrong thing because he doesn't want to displease his dad because he loves him. Not a dread. Do you have a love for Christ? Do you have a reverential love for God? That's, that's who this love, this mercy is reserved for. And so that's what we've got to ask ourselves. Do you, have a, do you have that kind of reverential fear of God? Because that's going to be true in the heart of a believer. I can think back in my life, I didn't love God. I didn't fear God at all before I knew Christ. And so for the Christian guys though, before we move to our next point guys, this, this reverential fear and love of God, can, can I tell you guys that, that is, that's the greatest accountability partner you can ever have is a reverential love and fear of God. You know, as far as like resisting temptation and these type of things, you know, having a, having a brother or sister that you can confide in and be honest, that's great. But you can even fool them. The thing that's going to truly drive you to, to live in an obedient, holy life when nobody's looking is this, this reverential love and fear of God. Okay? And so that's what we see here, guys. It's God-centered. It rejoices in mercy. Right? We, I mean... It's, 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 it's genuine. God has saved me. Thank you. And what is mercy, guys, before we move on? Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. That's what mercy is. And so when we realize that what we deserve is an eternal hell because of our sin against an eternal God, but then God in His mercy sent His Son 
(laughs) To die on the cross? To bear our wrath that we deserve? To take the wrath of God that we deserve? And that He would save us and forgive us when we come to Him by faith? Trusting in Him alone? That's mercy, guys. And so we rejoice in that. We rejoice in that. Third, we see true worship recognizes His judgment in verses 51-53. through Recognizes His judgment. So there are many in our day, oh, they would have no trouble rejoicing in mercy. They would have no trouble talking about the love of God. But many desire a God who is all love with no judgment is what we're going to see here. All love, no judgment. I just saw a, a, a short video on Facebook the other day. I don't know who the guy was, but he, was, he, ha- he had a, a short video going and he was approaching a church over in the UK somewhere. I say a church. It's, a, it's what they would call the church building. But they were the, there was a, an elderly lady and an elderly man and they were painting the steps going up into the building rainbow colors celebrating the LGBT. And so this, this brother was a, was a Christian and he, and he walked up to her and was just you know, asking her what she's doing and do you think God's okay with this? Oh yeah, yeah. God's love. That's, all, that's the only thing she could say. God is love. God is love. God is love. God is love. And, and so he just, it wasn't very long, but he was just, you know, she's trying to share truth with her. Yes, God is love, but God is also holy and just. And do you think, you know, do you think God has standards in these type of things? And all she could say was, God is love. Jesus is love. With no even concern about what God says about that particular lifestyle. And so, True worship recognizes not only His mercy, but also His holiness, His justice, which leads to judgment. That's what we're going to see here. Verse 51. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. His arm just It's just a symbol of strength, right? His strength and His power. What Mary is doing here in these next couple of verses is she is remembering some of the mighty deeds that He did in the Old Testament. Some of the mighty deeds that he did in the Old Testament. It says he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. You know, in Genesis 9, after the flood, God commanded humanity to increase in number and fill the earth. That's, that, that was his command. But they rebelled against that. And instead, they gathered all together and built a great city. And a great tower, the Tower of Babel, representing their their as, as a symbol of their power. They were trying to make a name for themselves against against the God of Heaven. Right, coming together. You know, we see the world doing the same thing now. God scattered them. God came down and confused their language and scattered them. And we see the we see the world trying to come together again, shaking their fist at God. We were just getting on the airplane last week, and on American Airlines, there's a sticker right when you get on. It says "One World." Isn't that amazing? It's Babel all over again, guys. And God's going to come down when Christ returns, and He's going to scatter them in judgment. It's going to be much worse. He's not going to confuse their language. But that's what we see with this. We see we see God scattering. That's that's where my mind went to. Scattered the rebellious. People at Babel, we think of God um, 
scattering the proud Philistines by striking down Goliath. These are just some of the works. It doesn't say in here, but maybe some of the some of the events that she was remembering. He brought down mighty Nebuchadnezzar from his throne, from his pride. You guys remember his his pride? In Daniel, in Daniel 4.30, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, said this, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built by the might of my power? Immediately after that, you can read the next few verses, 32 and 33. A voice came from heaven, and this is what happened. For seven years he was driven out by the Lord to graze on grass like the cattle. This mighty king was removed from his throne only to be driven out like, like the cattle, grazing on grass away from mankind until his hair grew like eagle's feather and his nails like bird's claws. Beloved, God humbles the proud. That's what we see in this passage here. God humbles the proud. But what, is, what does he say in verse what does she say in verse 52? And has exalted those who were humble. It makes me think of the tax collector in Luke 18. The, the, uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And you remember the Pharisee boasted that he's not like other people? I'm not like adulterers, swindlers, drunkards, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Lord, look at all these good deeds I do for you. The tax collector says he, he was not even willing to look up to heaven, but he beat his breast. And, 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 and he said this, guys. The only thing he could trust in. He said he beat his breast and cried out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus said he went to his house justified. Forgiven. And then he made the comment in that same chapter. And he, and he makes it other places as well. He, 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 those who humble themselves will be exalted. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled. I think I said that backwards. But that's what we see in Scripture, guys. That He humbles those who are proud. And He exalts those who are humble. You know, I think of that, guys, uh, about the whole... that He exalts the humble. I don't know... I know some of you guys have heard this story. Some of you may have not. But it's a story I told in Alabama um, that happened at the bus station years ago about Nancy the prostitute. And so Nancy was a lady that I... It was like my third time being at the bus station. I was preaching, and and this lady just appeared standing before me, and she was listening really well. And and so I I turned my amp off and asked her if she had a question, and she said, "Yeah, there's still hope for prostitutes." And so I I turned my amp off. I talked to her for like thirty minutes. We're both in tears as she's telling me her story, and 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 so I'm just sharing the gospel with her, and I and I'm not compromising it. I mean, my heart is broken for her, but I want her to know Christ. And, and so, she, she, made the, she made the statement. Again, this is like a 30-minute conversation, but she said, Brady, I, I do want to follow Christ, but she said, what will I do for income? She was like 60 years old, guys. She'd done this her whole life. And I felt helpless. But I said, I said Nancy, just if you come to Christ, God will provide. I mean, I didn't know what to tell her. And so... So I've never seen her since. She asked me if I was going to be there regularly. I said, yeah. And I've been going weekly ever since for eight years. I've never seen her before. uh, Or since then. And so I shared that story the other day in Alabama. And a lady came up to me afterwards and said this. 
Because it just made me, I've thought about Nancy. I really think God saved her. I really do. But I thought, man, what, what happened to her? And this lady came up and made a point the other day. And she said, no, you know, as you were sharing that story, she said, I knew a, a, a guy, I don't remember the particular story she shared, but she was sharing about a, an individual who came to Christ that was amidst very, very, like, impossible conditions. And, and she was sharing, God took them home. And she goes, you know what? I just, I just, obviously, guys, this is, I don't, I don't know this. She didn't know this. But she said, I would just like to think that, that, that God took her home. Knew her impossible situation she was in. Because I didn't know what to tell her. I said, I know God will save you. And I go, God will provide for you. But I, I just, my heart just broke for her. Uh, what would I do for income? This is all, she said, this is all I've ever done. And whether that happened or not, guys, I know that that, that is true. That those who humble themselves and come to Christ, one day you're going to be exalted. No matter how difficult this life is. No matter how our, our brothers and sisters in these communist countries who suffer martyrdom and death and torture, they're going to be exalted one day. And their tortures are going to be humbled one day. And so I know that's true. And so, whether that happened to Nancy or not, I don't know, but I know that if Nancy truly did humble herself and come to Christ, she will be exalted. Even as a lifelong prostitute, she'll be exalted. Jesus will say, she's mine. And so that's what we see in these texts. In verses 51-53, through guys, I think we can see something. In verses 51, we see God humbling people is what we see. And in verse 51, we see, I think you could say God humbling the, the, the proud in their intellect. Okay? In their intellect. In, in 1 Corinthians 1.19, it says this. Well, well let me read in, in, in verse 51. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. So this whole idea of God humbling those who are proud in their intellect. It, it reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1.19. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Men are so proud without Christ. Some, some people are very brilliant, maybe their intellect. And they're going to be humbled one day. I think of the man you guys probably all heard of him, Stephen Hawking. The atheist. He was a brilliant physicist. You know what his last words were, guys? It was in a book that he wrote that wasn't even completed until after his death it was completed by his family but his last words in that book is there is no God no one directs the universe now beloved that man was humble that man was humble he will destroy the wisdom of the wise in verse 52 we see God humbling the pride of position he has brought down rulers from their thrones. And Daniel 2.21 says, He removes kings and establishes kings. The pride of their wealth. In verse 53, He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Now again, it's not a sin to be wealthy. But when men trust in their riches, when they are proud because of their riches and they refuse to come to Christ... Because of the riches, the day of humbling is coming for all of them. And it reminds me of the rich man and Lazarus, right? The rich man, guys, he died, the Scripture says, and went to hell. Not because he was rich, but because he was proud. It was a picture of an unbeliever. And obviously, Lazarus, the one who was a beggar, the one who was covered in sores, feasting at God's table after death. 
And, and so, beloved, on the day of judgment, the tables will be turned on that day. The tables will be turned. You think of the, you think of the many uh, students that go off to college who love the Lord, simple Christians, and are harassed and, and intimidated by the professor. One day, the, the tables will be turned if that man doesn't repent. And again, I just mentioned all the other Christians under, under tyrants throughout the ages who have suffered at the hands of these wicked men. The tables are going to be turned one day. They really are. It reminds me of Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. These exact three things. He says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. You hear that? But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. We are to boast in one thing, guys, and one thing only, and that is Christ and Him crucified. Paul says, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's all we have to boast in. We can boast in Christ, guys. Boast in Him. There's nothing good in us. Any talent that we do have, any gifts that we have, even the ability to earn wealth, it says, is from the Lord. And so we're to boast in Him, guys. The, 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 the tables will be turned on that day. And so there is a real hell. There is a real hell that is swallowing up sinners by the day, by the second. Guys, that's what we deserve. Do you know Christ? That's the question. Do you know Jesus Christ? Because there is a real hell and those in their pride who die in their sins will go there. And so true worship recognizes, guys, the holiness of God, the justice of God, and, and His judgment. We recognize that. And so we worship Him for who He is. We don't celebrate that God's... Sinners go to hell that God sends... No, that's not what I'm saying. We come to God for who He truly is and we recognize Him. And we do worship Him for His, that He is a just God. He is a righteous God. And one day, all the wrongs in this world will be made right at His return. And so we worship God for who He is. We don't ignore that. We don't say, no, God is love, 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 love. And just ignore His justice. No, we don't do that. Mary wasn't doing that. She was recognizing for who He is. Worshiping Him in truth. And then lastly, we see true worship remembers His promises. In verses 54 and 55. True worship remembers His promises. It says, he has given, he has given, or She says, He has given help to Israel His servant in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and His descendants forever. And then verse 56, guys. It's really just kind of sitting there on their own. I'll go ahead and read that. Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. So probably right before John was born, she returned to her home. But verses 54 and 55, He has given help to his Israel's servant in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Mary here is simply remembering God's promises to her forefathers. These are her forefathers. When you think of the promises given to Abraham, we call it the covenant of Abraham or the promises given to Abraham. In, in Genesis 12.1, God told Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 17.5, God to Abraham. 
I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. You get, there are similar promises made to, again, her forefathers, Isaac, Jacob, David. Different promises made to these fathers. And so this covenant or this promise made to Abraham, guys, if you want to go back even further, and it's going to be revealed in just a minute what this promise is, it was actually promised to the serpent in the garden in Genesis 3.15. Remember this, we, we refer to this a lot. But it's all talking about the same thing. Genesis 3.15, after the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord told the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. Speaking to the serpent. Obviously referring to the Messiah who would come and crush the serpent's head by His work on the cross and His resurrection. Yes, He would be bruised on the hill, the Messiah, right? He would suffer. But ultimately, He would destroy, like Jesus said, I came to destroy the works of the devil. So that's what all this is a prophecy of. First in the garden, and then given to Abraham, and then others. It's all pointing to someone. It's pointing to Christ. All of these promises are referring to, are pointing towards the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. Okay? That's what all the promises in the Old Testament are pointing towards. Christ and Him crucified. That is where salvation is found. It is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. Look what he said, she says in verse 54. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. There it is again. Mercy. Guys, where is mercy found? It's only found in one place. That's at the cross. Remember what I said a while ago. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Unmerited favor. Mercy is God not giving you what you do deserve. What happened to Jesus on the cross? He took what we deserve. Think about your life. Think about your sin against God. He knows your thought life. He will judge us by our thought life. He says lust is adultery. Hatred is murder. God is holy. And so think of all the thousands of times you have sinned against God. And when Christ was on the cross, He stood in our place, bearing the wrath of God that you and I deserve. So that God wouldn't have to pour out judgment upon you. That's mercy. And it's all found in the cross. The salvation that was promised to, to Abraham and others is, is further clarified in what we call the new covenant. Turn over to Jeremiah real quickly, guys. We're going to wrap up here in a minute. But we see this, just these promises, it's, it's just becoming more clear throughout the Old Testament, ultimately going to be fully clarified when Jesus came. But in Jeremiah 31, verses 31-34, this is a picture of regeneration is what this is. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them on their heart 
Or and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This verse 34 is really the, the height of it here. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The writer of Hebrews repeats that verbatim in the book of Hebrews. So so whoever these are in the New Testament, they all or in the New Covenant, they all know him. This is a picture of, 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 of God giving us the new heart so that we know Christ. This is the doctrine of regeneration, being born again when he makes us new. And so what, what is going on here back in Luke is Mary understands that the birth of her son was about to fulfill all of these promises. That's what she understands in these verses. He has given help to Israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. All of these promises that he's made to, the, to her fathers are coming to pass through this baby in the womb. And so Mary is rejoicing. No wonder she's rejoicing. Verse 54. He has sent the Messiah. He has sent the promised one. The promised one that the angel spoke about in verse 32. That baby in the womb, he will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That was another promise we looked at a few weeks ago. This is the one. This is the one they've been waiting for. She is rejoicing at the promises of God being fulfilled. In verse 32, you remember what he said we spoke of a few weeks ago? The one in her womb, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And in the next verse, his kingdom will have no end. This is the promised one. His kingdom will have no end. But how do you enter that kingdom, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago. That's what's important. Okay, we can know these things, but are you a part of his kingdom? How do you enter this kingdom? Do you have to have a certain amount of money? Do you have to have a certain amount of an intellect? Do you have to have a certain amount of position or status? Do you have to be a certain... Uh, is it just male or female? <laughs> a certain ethnic group? No! You know how you enter this kingdom? Just like Mary did. You humble yourself. That's the beauty of this kingdom. We humble ourselves. So have you humbled yourself? Have you confessed to God that you're a sinner? That you need mercy? That you need forgiveness? You see, the tables will be turned. He who humbles himself now will be exalted then. And he who exalts himself now, sadly like most of humanity, are going to be humbled then. And beloved, only those who have humbled themselves can truly worship God. Oh, there can be things going on where outwardly it looks like people's worshiping God, but if somebody has not come through the narrow gate to Christ Jesus alone for the salvation of their souls, for the forgiveness of their sins, then there's no worship going on. It's just people moving their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. And so in closing, guys, what's the greatest demonstration of this? Of this whole idea 
of the tables being turned. What's the greatest demonstration in Scripture of this? I can think of no other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. In Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11. Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11. Think of all this language that we've been talking about of one humbling themselves, of, of, of when you humble yourself, you're going to be exalted, of the tables being turned. We remember who Christ is, right? We remember who He was. He's the eternal Son of God, He's the creator of all things. He was with the Father from all eternity. This is the one who came in the form of a baby through the virgin's womb. This is the one who came to this earth and put on human flesh and lived a sinless life in our place. This is the one that this verse is talking about. It says, being found in appearance as a man. Right? He was truly a man. Born of a woman. He humbled himself. And how did He do it, guys? Again, remembering who this is, the eternal God the Son. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. But not just any death, even death on a cross. Do we remember the shame that He suffered on that tree? His mocking, His scourging, being slapped, being punched, being clubbed, having a crown of thorns pressed into a skull, being hung on, to a, hung on a cross on the side of a garbage dump next to a road in public, probably naked, marred more than any human being ever marred, beaten, flogged, His flesh hanging, the eternal Son of God suffered and died upon a cross at the hands of godless, wicked men. Bearing the wrath of God for the payment for our sin. Paying for our sin. In His body. On the tree. Wounded for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. It says, for this reason also, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, beloved, Every knee will bow. Do you hear that? It doesn't say most. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess. Not most. Not if you want to. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is how one enters the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. This eternal kingdom. This is how we enter the kingdom. We humble ourselves. We bow our knee. And we confess Christ as Lord. We confess that we have no way to save ourselves. It's called repentance and faith. We humbly recognize that we have sinned against God. That we cannot save ourselves. We humbly are willing to turn from our sin. And, and a trust in Christ alone. It's either, it's either Christ or nothing. I'm not going to be able to save myself, so I trust in Christ alone. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I bow to You as my Lord, and I'm willing to follow after You. And so either all will bow and confess. That's what we see in this text. Everybody will bow and confess. 
Everybody will bow the knee. Everybody will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. But there's two, there's two choices. You can do it humbly, like I just mentioned. Or those who die in their pride will be forced to on that day. And they will be humbled on that day. So if you don't know Christ, call out to Him today. If you know Him, rejoice. Rejoice and pray for those who do not. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are so humbled by Your grace, Lord, that You would save such a sinful people as us. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your promises, God, that have been fulfilled in Christ. We thank You for sending Him to this earth to die in the place of sinners, to conquer death, hell, and the grave through His resurrection. So, Father, I just pray, Lord, that any who would hear this message, who heard this message, if they do not know You, Lord, I pray that You would draw them to Yourself, God, and that You extend Your merciful hand of salvation to them. Lord, we love You and we praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.